Section 23 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3, Chapter 5, Louis Sixteenth, Part 1. France had despised and condemned its sad and dissolute old monarch, Louis XV, who once had been Louis le Bien-Aimé, but the country still remained attached to the idea of royalty, and Louis XVI was welcomed with enthusiasm. The people saw in their young prince a possible saviour. Even the radicals did not dissociate the scheme of revolution and the monarchical system. They hoped to seat on the throne another Henry IV, or still better, a constitutional king like Farmer George across the Channel. For despite political rivalry, all that was English, from kings to turnips, and from a representative parliament to the new swimming plough, maintained its full prestige in France. Those immediately about the court conceived less lofty expectations. The young king had an excellent disposition, but very little mind, and the court exaggerated his slow dullness, which was not devoid of good sense. So much so, that when on his marriage to the lovely princess of Austria, the poet Marmontel suggested a wedding mask derived from the fairy tale of Beauty and the Beast, in French, La Belle et la Bête. The minister of the Menu Plaisir had hurriedly interrupted, Oh no, the public would think it an allegory. The court, perhaps, not the public. They knew that their young prince was brusque, sometimes even rough in his manners. They knew also that he was moral, sincere, and kind. They said that he resembled the Duke of Burgundy, Fenelon's pupil, who had died young threescore years agone, depriving France of a crowned reformer. They liked Louis no less that he was so little of a courtier, that he spent his days at a locksmith's bench when he was not hunting in the forest, that he liked talking to the common people, and was awkward and shy with the wits about the court, and that he was indifferent to all the race of women, even, it was said, to his own exquisite bride, and that for obvious reasons was a pity, knowing no passion so strong as the desire to serve and to save his suffering people. The truth lay somewhere between these two extremes. The king is the honestest man in the world, said an Englishman who knew him, Arthur Young, with but one wish, which is to do right. Yet he too laments Louis' lack of foresight and decisive parts, and that hesitating irresolution, born of too strong a conscience and too weak a mind, which make him ever the prey of the last opinion heard, unstable as water, constantly tacking and trimming a course which could not keep one constant goal in sight easy and lethargic, and sometimes so supine that he seemed merely stupid, one cannot imagine a character less congenial to the French. But Louis the Sixteenth resembled his German mother, the Princess of Saxony. Really well-meaning, amiable, full of human kindness, he had yet the most extraordinary sense of his own royal superiority, that right divine which his people had begun to question was transparently evident to Louis the Sixteenth. Although sincere, indeed ingenuous to the point of candor, he was not always truthful, 
and this occasional dissimulation sprang from nothing mean he considered himself so far above his subjects not by his personal worth but through his kingly office and so responsible to heaven for them that he practised with them sometimes for their own good an economy of truth as grown people must in their dealings with little children or with sick people intensely conscientious and utterly devoid of tact constantly vacillating sometimes he would suddenly crystallize into that terrible nervous obstinacy which the french call être and was then as impervious to argument or reason as any hysterical woman with all this kind to the core human to an extent that made all who approached him love him and yet exasperating to deal with for no man could count upon the king despite his love of right his real moral worth because of that weakness of mind in him and that still more fatal weakness of will it is unfortunate that after some years of complete indifference the lethargic king awoke to the fact that he was married to the most lovely and the most charming princess in europe the most beautiful woman i saw at versailles says arthur young while horace walpole wrote in ecstasies of the liquid grace of her every movement the poetry of motion her brilliant soft complexion her sweet long blue eyes and the abundance of her thick blonde hair made her a dazzling apparition to all northerners while french observers always great sticklers for regularity of feature remarked the too long oval of her face the prominent underlip that spoke of the Habsburgs, yet admitted that she possessed in perfection la grâce plus belle que la beauté when at last the bet discovered his bell his subjection was complete and the revenge of marie antoinette for years of conjugal indifference was a complete ascendancy the king and she were in politics on different sides of the hedge despite his exaggerated ideas of royal rights louis the sixteenth was at heart a liberal monarch he firmly meant to guide his people into an area of comparative freedom and popular prosperity the queen had none of her mother's political ability she was the daughter of the great maria theresa but a head full of the most violent aristocratic prejudices and disdains again and again louis would swear fidelity to the new planned constitution five minutes conference with his adored queen and he was planning to abet the intrigues of the ultra royalists all this was not of course immediately apparent for years the queen took no part in politics she was a spoiled child who thought of nothing but her pleasure her german idea of gemütlichkeit and the fashionable theories of rousseau made her abhor the restraint the ceremony the absence of all private retirement which hedged in the life of a french queen she was expected to live move eat dress even bear her children in public marie antoinette rebelled she would have a life of her own and in taking this innocent pleasure she managed to displease all parties alike the old nobility to whom the queen was a sacred thing almost like the crown or the flag were horrified to watch her gadding with a young brother-in-law to the balls of the opera or the risky little theatres of paris or even as the old marquis of mirabeau complained 
flitting about the gardens and galleries of versailles in a little frock and apron fit for a farmer's wife with neither page nor lackey in attendance and glad to accept the arm of any fellow in a frock coat polisson en frac that is not in court dress when she wishes to descend a flight of steps meanwhile the people resented yet more bitterly the selfishness of the queen's uncontrollable expenses the country was ruined the possibility of a national bankruptcy the theme of every serious conversation but the queen's high play her passion for precious stones her debts her bets her dressmaker's bill she did not always wear the little cotton frock her daily conferences with madame bertin the modiste and the extravagant fashions that she launched the vast sums too that she lavished on her bosom friends and favourites gained for her the reputation of a heartless frivolity the people called her madame déficit before they dubbed her l'autrichienne but that was ten times worse the day was to dawn when frenchmen would begin to suppose that their beautiful young queen betrayed the country of her crown for the benefit of the country of her cradle louis the sixteenth alone might have weathered the storm his wife was a cargo too precious to cast overboard whose dead weight would sink the royal ship perhaps the first faint rift between the queen and the nation may be placed at the date of the anglo-american war seventeen seventy eight to eighty three when the whole french public eager to avenge its wrongs on england and enraptured to find a country overseas inspired by its own new liberal ideas flamed up in a sudden enthusiasm for american independence liberty was the generous frenzy of the hour franklin with his wise head under his quaker's hat the idol of paris but while lafayette led his expeditionary force across the ocean to fight for the insurgents the court hung back franklin had won from louis the sixteenth a treaty of alliance yet now that the blows fell thick now that the cause of revolution prospered the king and queen of france began to feel that odd kinship that intimate freemasonry between sovereigns which is deeper than any national hate the king listened impatiently to the popular praise of franklin he said nothing but to one lady of his court who sang those praises too constantly he presented a portrait of the transatlantic reformer painted on the inside of i will not say what chamber utensil the queen on the other hand was loud in her regrets of the shabby trick that france was playing her english cousin by assisting the rebellion of his insurgent subjects she did not conceal her hostility and at the signing of that peace of seventeen eighty three which established the freedom of the united states she affected to treat the english as her dearest friends while all paris was seething with the new ideas of liberty social and political equality the rights of man while the peace of versailles which restored to france her colony of senegal and four of her lost indian cities was filling the country with the still richer joy of hearing herself acclaimed the fairy godmother of a liberated world the minister of war segur or rather in point of fact the court in the very wantonness of brutal opposition revoked an old edict of louis quinze 
already in force for more than thirty years, which permitted men of less than noble birth to take rank as officers in the army. According to this new edict, no officer might now attain the grade of captain unless he could prove four generations of noble forefathers, or show himself at least the son of a chevalier of Saint-Louis, nor should he enter the church, could he hope to rise beyond some village vicarage. The French provinces were full of comfortable and cultured families, a little less than noble, a good deal more than humble, in which for the last thirty or forty years the eldest son had inherited the family manor, the next had risen to distinction in the army, the third was doubtless abbe of some comfortable benefice, for the fourth his parents had bought some post in the magistrature, while the fifth made his way in the office of some intendant or financier. Imagine the consternation of the generation of young Frenchmen who attained their twentieth year about 1780. Men born in cultivated yet laborious homes, accustomed to a prolonged effort, capable of working, if needs be, twelve hours a day. By reason of their education and experience, these young bourgeois were generally in advance of the sprigs of nobility. At the examinations of the artillery school, it soon became a proverb that the competent were not noble and the noble were not competent. Let us imagine the chagrin, the rancor of men of talent and character, men such as Laclos, I was going to say such as Bonaparte, but he was noble, men such as all Bonaparte's generals, men such as Barnave, Carnot, Danton, an energetic race, conscious of their own superiority, full of ambition, capacity, and energy, yet condemned in every career to take the lowest room and to contemplate with heaven knows what barely stifled rage the young half-sharp of sixteen quarterlings who because he had taken the trouble to be born assumes himself a natural superior and of course i do not mean in that age of all ages whose nobility was so rarely gifted so open-minded so generous and so gracious that the duke was by reason of his birth mentally inferior to the doctor not at all. A Liancourt, a La Rochefoucauld, was equal to the best. But the time had gone by when the government might assume in the noble a natural capacity, in the man of the middle class a natural incapacity, for any post or any art, even the art of war. Nothing, wrote Rivarol, not the taxes, nor the lettres de cachet, nor the laws, nor the abuse of authority, not the despotism of the provincial intendants, nothing irritated the nation so sorely as the prejudice of noble precedence. C'est le préjugé de la noblesse pour laquelle elle a manifesté le plus de haine. End of section 23